You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Turn to Galatians chapter 2, if you don't mind. We'll pick it up in verse 1. Galatians chapter 2, while you're finding your place, uh, Pastor Paul and I had the opportunity Thursday night to uh, go over to UNCP and uh, be part of their crew gathering with Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, it's their uh, on-campus Christian ministry, and uh, John Dial uh, leads that ministry along with some of the college students. Got the opportunity to speak over there, really, truly enjoyed that. We had about, about 30, 35 uh, college students there, and I'm telling you, uh, those students are on fire for Christ, and it was so encouraging to be able to be with them. Some of our folks were there who attend UNCP, so I was glad to see that. Uh, just be praying for John and that ministry. Um, God's doing an incredible work there, and uh, they're even uh, planning a trip spring break to go to Disney World, not just for fun, but to go share the gospel inside the campus of Disney World. That's pretty awesome. So I was really encouraged by being over there Thursday night, and uh, I'd ask that you pray for John and that ministry. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Father in heaven, we pause in this moment just to say thank you for the fact that you show no partiality. There are not some who are in good with you and some of us who are not. On a hill outside the walls of Jerusalem, you made it known to all the world in that moment that you love us with an everlasting love, allowing your son to die publicly a horrific death. And so, Father, within this belief system, our faith in you, there's not a hierarchy of those you love more and those you love less. And for that, I am deeply grateful. I am grateful that it's not based upon performance. For if it were, I'd be in miserable shape. Because, Father, you and I both know how much I fail each and every week. And if it was based on my performance, then there'd be no way that I could ever earn your favor. But, Father, because of your providence, because of your sovereignty, because of your grace, because you saw me in eternity past, you chose to show me your love and chose to send people into my path that would share the truth with me. I'm forever changed. But, Father, I am thankful. I'm thankful for the grace that found me. Father, God, us in your word this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. I grew up in a rather small church in a little town called Rhonda, North Carolina. It's the same church that my, my dad still attends. My mom's not able to anymore, but um, I grew up with, with pastors who proclaimed the gospel, 
I grew up with pastors who were passionate about evangelism and lived that out. The church I grew up in, I loved, and I love the people. But there's a, there's a but in this story, and um, I'm going to share a little bit about it this morning because in the church that I grew up in, in a lot of churches in the mountains where I'm from and even over into East Tennessee and up into Virginia and in that area right there, and I know it's other areas, but specifically in that area because that's my exposure, uh, there, there is something that runs through a lot of independent Baptist churches, and that's what I grew up as. The church I was part of was fiercely, fiercely independent, which means they were not in association with other churches. They would partner with other churches, but they were pretty much, well, independent. And they took quite a bit of pride in that, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But for all of my years growing up in that church, and I got into my 20s, I came to faith when I was 16, but I really didn't start digging into my faith and what I believed. What, what I basically did is I just depended on the pastor to tell me what I was supposed to believe. And so whatever he said, whatever my Sunday school teacher said, that was the gospel truth. I never questioned it. And, and, and quite frankly, that's, that was my walk of discipleship. Whatever the church said, that's what it was, and that's what I believed. But when I got in my 20s, I began to question some things, e even down to questioning my faith. And, and some of that was because I was, I was kind of living in rebellion at the same time, and and I began to really question some things, and I began to question some fundamental things. And there was a time in my life where another man kind of began to disciple me and pour into my life, and I began to see things and actually began to read Scripture for myself. And to my shock and dismay, there were things that I found out in Scripture that were the opposite of what I was told. And it bothered me. It bothered me deeply. Now, what I'm about to share with you this morning is not to take away from the church I grew up in. I love that church still to this day. I, I love the people that are there. I love the pastors that I grew up under. But just to say that what I'm going to share with you this morning about my life as a Christian, those early years, especially up into my 20s, when I got into God's Word and began to try to rightly divide it for myself, I began to find out that there were things that I was told that could not be found in this book. So, so to kind of set that stage, turn with me over to Mark chapter 7. I want you to hear something Jesus said to the religious rulers because it is, it, is, it is very important for this next phase of where Paul is going in this letter to the churches in Galatia. It's very important. So Mark chapter 7, the, 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 the tension between Jesus and the rulers of Judaism, the Pharisees, Sadducees, it is, it is growing the animosity is growing, the hatred towards Jesus is growing, and, and the hatred is growing predominantly because it appears as though Jesus doesn't value the Mosaic law. And initially, it's because of the Sabbath, his lack of what they thought, what they thought is a lack of respect for Sabbath observance. And, and this would come up several times. And early in the Gospel of Mark, very early in this Gospel, the, the religious leaders are already plotting on how they're going to kill him. Because he was a threat. So in, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus confronts this whole premise of the truth of the gospel versus the traditions of men. Listen to what he says. Now, first thing he does, speaking of verse 6, he's going to quote from the, from the prophet Isaiah, verse 6. And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? In other words, didn't, didn't Isaiah talk about you guys way back 600 years before? And he quotes this, he says, the people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Then listen to this, in vain do they worship me, 
teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Teaching as doctrines the traditions and commandments of men. Jesus, just to get his point across, is going to hit this three more times in this section. Look at verse 8. Jesus looks at him and he says, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. Verse 9, and then he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own traditions. Verse 13, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many, th many such things do you do. Go back over to Galatians. Now, Jesus confronts the religious rulers and he says to them, your traditions, your commandments have taken precedence over the revealed truth of God. As a matter of fact, in that moment, Jesus is the Word of God in flesh. And he is speaking the truth, and the very truth he is speaking is going to lead him to a cross. They're going to crucify him, and they're going to accuse him of blasphemy. They're going to accuse him of not keeping the Mosaic law simply because they had a group of commands that they had developed and it had taken precedence over what God had actually said. Now, let me take you back to my childhood and my early adulthood. There were some things that I was told that were true, even that God's Word teaches these things, only to find out that I had heard the commands of men and the traditions of men rather than what God's Word actually says. Let me give you the first one. The area that I grew up in, uh, many, many churches up there are what we would consider KJV-only churches. Let me explain that. For some of you, this may be a totally new concept, but uh, especially if you're new to church, but the King James Version is a translation of the Bible. It uses Old English as part of that translation. Some of you use it, and that's great. It's very poetic. I even still use it in my study. But the churches where I lived and grew up is that those churches would say, unless you use the King James Translation, you are less than. For some of those churches, they would even add that to the gospel, that unless you use the King James Version Bible, you are not born again. To my surprise, when I got into the Bible, I find nothing about that at all. There was this time that I had to do a funeral. One of my teenagers, I was doing youth ministry at the time, one of my teenagers' mother had passed away as a single mom, and and uh, she was a member of another church, and this teenager had asked me to do the funeral, which I was more than honored to do. And, but I never met this pastor, never met this church. It was kind of up, up further in the mountains. And so I go there to do this funeral. And I was the main speaker at the funeral that day. And, and as, as is pastors, what we normally do if we're doing a, a, a funeral with another pastor, we want to get to meet that pastor before the funeral, you know, just talk over some things and, and, and then move forward. So I, I drive to this church, and as soon as I get out of the car, now, I've got my Bible under my arm, and at that time, I was using New King James. I was really radical in that area, right? Moved from King James to New King James. Oh, that was unheard of. And I had my New King James translation under my arm, and I get out of my car, and this pastor of this church walks straight up to me, doesn't introduce himself, doesn't shake my hand, looks me dead, and I points his finger right in my face, and he says to me, he says, he says, son, if that Bible under your arm. I know what church you come from. You're from the big city church. If that Bible under your arm is anything other than the King James Version, you can get back in that car and go back to your big city church right now. Well, hey, nice to meet you too. For him, that was a deal breaker. 
so you may be wondering, what did I do? Well, uh, I wasn't going to dishonor this pastor in his church. I, swallow, I, I pushed my flesh back because I'm going to tell you something. I wanted to say some things right then, but I didn't. I just I said, sir, it's not going to be a problem. I put the Bible back in my car, and I knew in that church there'd be King James Version Bibles everywhere. And I went and got one of their Bibles, and I used it during, during my sermon. Just because just my goal there that day was to serve that family, not to appease some guy in his tradition. Yet, my goal was to serve the family. Here's another one for you. I was told that women can only wear dresses to church. That if you wore slacks, you wore pants, you wore blue jeans, you were less than. And I heard verses talked about out of Deuteronomy chapter 22 that said that, that, that was interpreted and applied as though a woman could never wear pants at all during a gathered worship service. Now, if you choose to wear a dress, that's fine. That's no problem. But here's what would happen and still happens in a lot of the churches. That was used as a matter of legalism that if you did something other than what they said, then you were less than. And in fact, some churches would take it so far that you are separated from God because of the clothes that you chose to wear. Same thing for men. If you didn't have a suit and tie on, you were less than. Make no mistake that the Bible doesn't say what the Bible says about dress is modesty. It doesn't say. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy and throughout the Bible, what do we see men wearing? What do we see women wearing throughout the history of the pages of Scripture? Long, flowing robes. So the idea of pants and slacks were completely foreign to the Bible. What about this one? I was told that if you have any kind of tattoo, if you have any kind of piercing other than women's having one piercing, which always blew my mind, if you only had one piercing, that was okay. But if you had more than one, well, that wasn't okay. And I'm thinking, where is this in the Bible? Well, the problem was it wasn't found anywhere. And it's the same thing that Jesus was saying to the Pharisees. I learned this in my 20s, that there have been things I have been told that were the traditions of men, not Scripture. And I want you to know it set me on my heels a little bit. So Paul, in this letter to the church, churches of Galatia, he's going to take us a little deeper into this concept called legalism. Now, he's already, he's kind of already opened this up, and he says, look, there's a man's gospel. Man's gospel says that you are to do works to impress God, and if you impress him enough, if you tilt the scales just enough, then God is going to accept you, that if you keep the law, you be a good little boy, a good little girl, if you, if you go to church enough and give enough money and you be generous and all these things, you just stack them up, then God is going to be just like super impressed with you and that you're in. He says that's man's gospel. But Paul says, that's not the gospel that I received. The gospel that he received on the Damascus Road from Jesus himself, the resurrected Lord, was the only gospel that could take a terrorist, which Paul was, and turn him into a missionary. Man's gospel cannot do that. The gospel that, that Paul received on the Damascus Road was such that it changed him from the inside out. So much so that he would look at his previous life as a, as a Jew. He would look at his previous life of climbing this ladder of success, and he would look at that and he'd say, I count every bit of that as loss when compared to Christ. I count every bit of that as animal dung when compared to Jesus Christ. That's what he said. So for Paul, he says, look, you got two options here. You can believe in the true gospel that sets you free from the works that you think you have to do to impress God, that, that Jesus did all of those works on your behalf. He fulfilled the entire law. 
You put your faith in him, and there's freedom that we experience in Christ. Or you can spend the rest of your life trying to impress God. He says, I didn't receive my gospel. He said, I didn't receive the truth from a hierarchy of elders that passed it to me. I heard it from Jesus, and it changed his life. Let me give you a definition of legalism as we get into what Paul is, is going to kind of open up here. Now, Paul's going to open something in chapter 2, and he's going to dig deeper into it in the following chapter. So he's, he's going to kind of put this in front of us today. And then in the following chapters, we're going to go deeper into this whole idea of legalism. But let me give you a definition of legalism. Legalism takes my opinion and makes it your obligation. My opinion becomes your obligation to keep it. Legalism takes my feeling about something and makes it your burden. It takes my conclusion and makes it a requirement for you. It takes traditions and turns them into commandments. This is what legalism is. It takes an opinion and requires you to oblige. It requires you to keep it. So let's look at what Paul says here. And, and again, this is just kind of opening up, well, quite frankly, a can of worms here that we're going to have to dig into in a week. Say, verse 1, chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, Galatians chapter 2, I believe, is referring us back to a key moment in the book of Acts. And I believe it's referring us back to this moment in Acts 15 called the Jerusalem Council. Now, if you read commentators... There's, a, there's kind of a divide between the commentators. Some commentators say that, that, no, this is not Paul talking about what happened in Acts 15. This is about another meeting that they had to deal with this issue of man's gospel versus the true gospel. But after I read this and after I looked at it, I'm still of the conclusion that Acts 15 is, is what Paul is referring to here. Remember the book, the letter to the church of Galatia, uh, the churches of Galatia, this, this, was one of the, this is the earliest letter in the New Testament. This is the earliest writing, probably right around 49. A.D. This was probably written right after Paul's first missionary journey. So this is, the, if you go to the book of Acts and you look at Acts 13, 14, and 15, that's the time frame for when Paul wrote this first letter. So he says he takes Barnabas, Barnabas, one of Paul's best friends, the son of encouragement. He also takes a guy with him by the name of Titus. Now Titus is a Greek. He's a Gentile. And we're going to find out in just a little while something very interesting about Titus, but it's interesting to me that, that Paul is going to go back to Jerusalem. He's going to go to the leaders of the Jerusalem church, which would be Peter and James and John and the other leaders in the Jerusalem church, and they are going to have a conversation about what is the true gospel. Are they preaching a different gospel in Jerusalem than Paul's preaching in Asia Minor? And if so, what does that mean? What? What does it mean? Well, if you're preaching some gospel that has works included, and I'm preaching a gospel by grace, Paul says, we have got to decide in the whole Jerusalem council, we have got to make sure we understand that Christianity is not some kind of subsect or sub-religion of Judaism. But you have Judaism here, Christianity here, and to be a Christian, you have to, yes, put faith in Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised. You have to honor the Sabbath. You have to keep the law. Paul says it's time to plant a flag and plant it clear that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, that you are transformed, and it is not by the work of the law. So Paul, Barnabas, and Titus are going to make their way to Jerusalem, and they're going to have a meeting to make sure we're all on the same page here. Look what he says. He says, I went up because of a revelation set before them, and it says here in parentheses, though privately, 
Paul says there was a revelation that caused him to do this. Now, we don't know what it is because he didn't tell us, but we do know that the Damascus Road experience where, where Paul saw Jesus was not the only time that Paul had an interaction directly with Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is another indication that Paul had a, a revelation from Jesus himself. So apparently, Paul is constrained that he must go to Jerusalem. This is so pressing and this is so important. We must have this conversation. And he says, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. Now that, that verse or that phrase perplexed me a little bit. Because on the one hand, it's Paul saying here that if he goes to Jerusalem and he's with John and Peter and James and the other leaders, and he finds out that they are adding works to the gospel, what's he going to do? Is, does that mean that, is Paul saying that if he finds that out, that means he's been running in vain? That is not at all what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying that if he goes to Jerusalem and finds out there's a works-based salvation that they're proclaiming, Paul is in no way is going to acclimate to that. Paul is going to continue to preach a gospel by faith through grace. He is not going to acclimate. What he means by running in vain is that all of these people that he's seen come to faith in Christ through his ministry, this first missionary journey that he went on, it was 53 days long. He traveled 1,581 miles. He returns back to Antioch in Syria, and they're celebrating all that God is doing among the Gentiles because what God is doing among the Gentiles is no different than what God is doing among the Jews who express faith in Jesus. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. They're proclaiming the gospel. We're planting churches. Those churches are thriving. Paul is saying there's no difference. But Paul says that he didn't want to be running in vain. In other words, he's out there telling these Gentiles, it is by faith through grace. And then somebody comes from Jerusalem and says to them, oh, no, 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 no. You got to do some works of the law. That's what's happening. You got to be circumcised. You got to honor the Sabbath. Verse 3, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. Now, that's an interesting piece of evidence that Paul provides for us here. Why would, he, why would he throw that in? Well, now, notice this. Paul is taking Titus and Barnabas to Jerusalem to have a meeting with the Jerusalem leaders about what Jesus is doing among the Gentiles. I think Titus is Paul's exhibit A. So when they get to Jerusalem, Paul's just going to say simply, look at Titus. Titus is a Gentile. And Titus has never been circumcised. Titus is not observing the Sabbath, but yet Titus has the Holy Spirit. It is evident how he's living. As a matter of fact, Paul would say in Titus chapter 1, verse 4, he would say that, that Titus is a son of the faith. Paul saw him as a son. He takes Titus with him all the way down to Jerusalem as exhibit A. I think that's a pretty good approach. Verse 4, yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in, I want you to underline this in your Bible, slipped in to spy out our freedom, underline our freedom in Christ, so that they may bring us into slavery, underline slavery. Here's where Paul's heading with this, and this is where he's going to head in the rest of the letter. Paul's going to set before us two options. One option is man's gospel, a works-based salvation where you continually try to do the law to impress God so that God will say, I'm so impressed with you, welcome into the kingdom. Or we trust in Christ, we put our faith in Christ, and because of our faith in Christ, the law has been fulfilled on our behalf, and then we have the opportunity to live out our faith in freedom, not in slavery. Paul says that these people who are creeping into the church, who are bringing man's gospel, what they seek to do is to enslave you by putting your neck in a yoke. They're looking at our freedom that we have in Christ. They have 
freedom to worship. They have joy. They have peace. And these people are looking at that going, we need to, we need to enslave them to the law. They need to keep the law. Who, who are they to have this kind of freedom? They, don't they know what Moses wrote? And that's the conflict that must be addressed. So you have a choice. And the fact is, is where you have your faith is either going to bring freedom or slavery, one or the other. Last week, we talked about the fruits of man's gospel versus the fruits of the true gospel. The fruits of man's gospel is a pride and arrogance, a look at me, look how righteous and spiritual I am. That's man's gospel. Uh, the true gospel is that which we surrender our life to Christ and we admit that we couldn't fix ourselves. And in that, we have humility. That, that when you approach Christ, you approach him with humility, not demanding anything of Christ, but simply surrendering all to him, and he changes your life from the inside out. You see the difference. The fruit of each of those gospels, a false one and a true one, are very evident, and you can clearly see them. Paul says that another fruit of the false gospel is slavery, a yoke around your neck. So whatever you have your faith in, is it bringing freedom in your life? When you got up this morning, let me, let me ask you this. When you, when you got up this morning, you've had a hard week. You've worked extra hours this week. You've, maybe you've, you've put in way more hours. There's all kinds of stuff you had to deal with at work this week. And the alarm clock goes off at 7.30 this morning, and you roll over, and you, you see your phone buzzing. It's time to get up. And this is the first thought that runs through your mind. Oh, my goodness, i got to get up and go to church. Not, oh man, I get to be with God's people, I get to worship, I get to sing, I get to be in God's Word, I get to hear it talk, and I get to see the people that I love most, my family in Christ. Which was it? I'm going to leave that with you, you don't have to answer. But sometimes if we are falling into this trap of legalism, we'll look at that alarm clock on Sunday morning and, and, and being part of what God is doing here and then this fellowship is, is a burden, it's a yoke, it's not freedom. If that's the case, we might want to take a look at where we have our faith. We might want to take a look at, at what we actually believe. Paul says the true gospel leads to freedom. Man's gospel leads to slavery. Turn to Acts chapter 15. Let's take a look at this meeting that they have. This is going to further clarify the division or the issue of these Judaizers. Judaizers being people who seemingly express faith in Jesus to come out of Judaism, but then when they, when they get involved in the church, they bring with them the Mosaic Law and then begin to try to force it on everyone else. So they're going to meet in Jerusalem. So it says, Galatians says that Paul, Barnabas, and Titus go up. They're in Antioch of Syria. They go up to Jerusalem for this meeting. So we pick it up in verse 1, chapter 15. Now this is Paul talking about, or this is Luke recording what was going on in the church at Antioch with Paul, Silas, I'm sorry, Paul, Barnabas, and Titus. Verse 1, but some men came down from Judea, come down to Antioch, and were teaching the brothers, and listen to this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Let me switch to that. Unless you read a King James Version, you cannot be saved. Unless you wear a dress, you cannot be saved. Unless you get rid of your tattoos, you cannot be saved. Unless you clean yourself up, you cannot be saved. Unless you walk away from your own life, you cannot be saved. You hear where this is going? The same exact thing right here 
in this council, leading up to this council, you've got people saying, you must, Jesus and the gospel is not enough. You must be X, Y, Z. You must do these things or otherwise God doesn't accept you. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with him, Paul and Barnabas, and here it is, some of the others, which includes Titus, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Jump down to verse 5. So Paul, Barnabas, Titus, and some other brothers from Antioch make their way to Jerusalem to have this meeting to find out, is Christianity going to be a sect of Judaism or is this something new that Christ is doing? And he's doing it among the Gentiles. Verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Here's the thing about legalism. You got to get this. The thing about legalism is, and the thing about man's gospel is, there is never enough that you can do, ever. First, it was circumcision. That's what they said right there. It says, you got to be circumcised. But guess what? There's always going to be more. Now it's the whole law of Moses. You got you to keep all the law. Well, certainly put your faith in Jesus, but, but you got to keep these 613 laws as well. Well, I guarantee you, if it keeps going on, there's going to be more and more and more and more. That's exactly what Jesus was confronting in Mark chapter 7. The traditions of the elders had gotten so far out of control that it had overtaken the truth of God's word. So now you have this hierarchy. Of people who are super religious, some that are kind of in the middle, and then the, well, the losers and the vagabonds trying to make it, trying to figure it all out on their own. Paul says, or what's going to happen in this council is, is they're going to speak to this. Verse 6, Peter's going to be the first one to speak. And he says, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel. Now, I don't have time to get into this, but but Peter was confronted with this in Acts chapter 10 of taking the gospel to the Gentiles by, because of a guy by the name of Cornelius. And it's just this messed Peter up that, that, that God is doing among the Gentiles the same thing he's doing among the Jews. And it blew his mind. Okay? Let's read on. Verse 8. And God knows. Well, I'm sorry. Back up. Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse 8. And God, who knows their heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he has made no distinction between us and them. Get what Peter's saying here. Peter's saying to this council, look, and he's saying to those Pharisees who say that they need circumcision, they need to keep the Sabbath. He looks at them and he says, look, look at what's happening among the Gentiles. They are receiving the Holy Spirit. The gospel is going forward. Their hearts are being changed. Families, entire villages are being changed by the gospel of Christ. The same thing that we see the Holy Spirit doing in Jerusalem, he is doing in Samaria, and he's doing in Philippi, and Paul's going to tell him doing it all over Asia Minor. So what kind of law, what kind of works do you want to add to that? Paul would be the first to say that there's no work of the law that could have ever changed his life. Notice what else Peter says. He says, verse, uh, latter part of verse 9, he said, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by works of the law, cleansed their heart by keeping the Sabbath, cleansed their heart by circumcision, cleansed their heart by adhering to the 613 Mosaic laws and the traditions of the elders. No, he says that their hearts were cleansed by faith plus nothing. Entrance into the kingdom of God is by faith 
through grace, not by some work you're going to perform. You are not getting in good with God. You are not impressing him. The only way to move from death unto life is through faith in what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf. That's an incredible, incredible, powerful thing to consider. Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? uh, Peter says, the law is like a yoke. We couldn't bear it. I couldn't bear it. His forefathers couldn't bear it. The Pharisees couldn't bear it. In other words, they could not keep the law. They knew they couldn't keep the law. So Peter says, it's like a yoke around your neck. A yoke being like what you would put an oxen in to pull a plow. A big clunky chunk of wood around your neck. Trying to to please God by doing things. It's like having a big chunk of concrete around your neck where you can't have any joy or any peace or any laughter or any, well, any peace at all. Because you're always worried, have I done enough? And you spend your whole life doing everything everybody tells you to do. You spend your whole life trying to please God and make sure he's impressed with you so that when that day comes, the, the, the scales are tipped just enough only to find out that after everything you've done, without putting your faith in Jesus, you have still missed the gospel. And the only thing left for you at that point is bitterness, anger, and hatred toward God. I've seen it a hundred times. Placing a yoke. That word yoke is used six times in the New Testament. Four out of those six times is referring to the law. Four out of the six times it refers to the law. Now, later on, Paul is going to get deeper in Galatians about the law and it's how the law is to be utilized within this system of grace. But before that, we need to understand that, that man's gospel says that the entrance into the kingdom is by what you do. That's the opposite of what the true gospel says. The true gospel says it's not about what you do. It's, what about, it's about what Jesus did on your behalf. Go back to Galatians. Later in that council, Paul would uh, stand up, and they would give a defense of the gospel. And I would imagine that during that meeting, Paul would say, well, hey, check out Titus over here. Titus was in the room, and he points to Titus. He says, right there's a guy, Gentile, uncircumcised. He came to faith. His life has been changed and he's, he's proclaiming the gospel. No different than what's happening in the streets of Jerusalem. Go back to Galatians chapter 2. Notice what Paul says in verse 6. In verse 6 he says, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. Now, if you read the latter part of this, it seems like Paul is a little bit derogatory towards the leaders in Jerusalem. That's not it at all. What Paul is going to say is that you got John who John writes in his gospel, the one that Jesus loved. You've got Peter, who is like the the, uh, default leader of the disciples. You've got James. You've got all these key leaders. And and what Paul is saying is, look, I received the gospel in in a due time, in a later time, in a time removed from them. I didn't get to walk with Jesus. I wasn't there when Jesus called the 12. So it would be very easy for Paul and for others to look at Paul and go, well, you're some kind of a less than apostle. And that's not what Paul says. Paul says... That God shows no partiality. Get this. It'd be easy for us to think that, man, John, think of John. You got John who is um, there with Jesus through all these critical moments of Jesus' ministry. And it would be really easy for us to think that, that G- John or Peter or some of the other are more loved by Jesus and more loved by God than you are. 
because they were there. They saw it. They, they were the ones who started the New Testament church being filled with the Holy Spirit. It would be easy to think that all that Peter and John and James and Philip later on would accomplish, we would, we would think that, that God loves them more. But the fact of the matter is, based on what Paul says here and in other places, especially Romans, that, that the, 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 the ground beneath the cross is level, that, that John came to faith exactly the same way that I came to faith. His life was changed the same way mine was, and that God loved him just like he loves me. You see, if I believe that it's not works that gets me in good with God, then I have to believe that God shows no partiality, that there's not some greater than others. You see, that's always the danger of legalism, is that legalism always sets up a hierarchy, that some are better than others. That's the point. I would argue that the whole point of legalism, the reason churches go down the path of legalism, is to make themselves feel better about themselves, about how great they are when compared to somebody down the road. Paul and Barnabas speak to the signs that were being done among the Gentiles to simply get across to say, look, the gospel we are proclaiming and the gospel that you're proclaiming, we're proclaiming the same gospel, and God is doing the same works among the Gentiles as he is among the Jews. There's no partiality here. None whatsoever. As much as the Jewish leaders would think that they're in with God beyond the Gentiles, those Samaritans who they believed to be worse than a dog that Christ and his gospels being proclaimed in Samaria and lives are being changed. For the ardent Jew, that would be a hard thing to accept because they believe themselves to be better than everyone else. I want to give you five characteristics of legalism so you can be on the look for it. So you can look out for it. When it's creeping into your life, when you see it around you, you can, you can know what it looks like. First of all, legalism always makes a distinction always again i think that's the point that within these hierarchies you have some that may be keeping a few more laws than someone else this group of people looks down on that group of people oh well he's not wearing a suit and tie well he can't be as spiritual as i am oh she's not wearing a dress this morning well that certainly means something that makes me better than her. Well, he's not carrying a King James Version Bible. Well, he must be less. I know this sounds insane. But folks, legalism can creep in and, and, and it appeals to our pride. It appeals to our arrogant nature. And I'll tell you that at the core, at the base of legalism is an abject narcissism. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's what the Sadducees were doing. So when Jesus shows up, proclaims himself to be Messiah, and he points at them and he says, your heart is cold and indifferent. When on the outside, everything looked great, but on the inside, Jesus could see their heart. And he says, you're full of dead men's bones. Number two, legalism misinterprets and wrongly applies God's word consistently. Now, listen, listen to this just a moment. When you, when you interpret Scripture, when you read the Scripture, and you come out with, this is what Scripture means. This is what this paragraph or this chapter is teaching. From that, we go to apply, right? What, what are we going to do with it? How are we going to live this out? Well, if, you're, if your interpretation is wrong, your application will always be wrong. So when I look back at some of these things that I was told that were the traditions of men rather than what Scripture teaches, I go and I go in God's Word and I begin to find not only does God's Word not teach that, 
But God's Word actually teaches the opposite of what I was told. How does that happen? Well, somebody said something about this particular text means this, and another person never checked it out, and another person never checked it out, and they just keep preaching it, proclaiming it, and teaching it without anybody ever saying, hey, wait a minute, can you show me, can you show me how that Scripture teaches this? Because I don't see that. Legalism misinterprets and wrongly applies God's Word. Number three, legalism makes my opinion your obligation. Well, if we're not basing it in the authority of God's Word, then what do we have left? Opinions. Now, the authority of this church, the authority of this church is God's Word and, 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 the, and the chief shepherd who died and gave his life for it. Jesus is the authority. He is the head elder of this church. His word, God's word, Genesis to Revelation, this is the authority. This is how we find out how we are to live out our faith. This is, this is what teaches us about what it means to follow Jesus faithfully. So if, if we discount this or we misinterpret it and we misapply it, the only thing we've got left is our opinions. And, folks, that's what happens. Our preferences. There are, church, there are churches in my hometown, I don't know, maybe in this area too, but there are churches in my hometown that are still fighting over whether they should have a projection screen or not. They're, they're, they're arguing over whether the carpet should be red or green. Just, just take me outside and beat me with a rubber hose. Don't put me in any meetings like that. Lord have mercy. Because I will offend everybody in the room within about five seconds. They're arguing over minor things, things that mean nothing. And by the way, things that the Bible doesn't even speak to. And we make the minor things become major things. And then what do we do? We fight about them. We argue about them. We have this pecking order of who's greater and who's more righteous. And the next thing you know, well, we have a church split over the most foolish of things. Rooted in legalism. It makes my opinion your obligation. Number four, legalism enables me to place myself over you. Boy, that really appeals to our pride. That's the core, core purpose. It, 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 we like it because we can look down on others and build ourselves up. We can look down at others who don't, well, think the way we think, that don't share our opinions. And then finally, legalism replaces freedom in Christ with a yoke of bondage. How's that, how's that man's gospel working for you practically? How's that constantly getting up every day trying to figure out how you're going to do enough that day to please God so he'll accept you? How's that working for you? Would you describe that as being a life filled with peace and joy, or would you describe that life as being yoked in bondage and slavery that eventually leads you to the place where you look at God and go, I don't really like you anymore. If I can't please you, if I can't do enough stuff so that I can be happy in this life. If I can't do it, then you know what? I don't, I don't really like you. I don't really need you in my life. I'm going to continue to go through the rituals. This is a scary thing, folks. Please, please get your arms around this. I'm going to continue to go through the rituals, but I want nothing to do with God. Does that describe you this morning? If it does, we could probably go back in time far enough to find out that you were believing a man's gospel. Works. And because you've never felt like you've ever been able to please God in the things that you've done, you're just angry, bitter, 
Add to that the people in your life who've passed away. Add to that the brokenness you've had in your life. Add to that the sin-cursed world. And you're at a place right now where you're here and you got a smile on your face. There's just one more work, one more box you're checking. And you really don't care for God at all. See, it comes down to what you put your faith in. If you put your faith in man's gospel, there's going to be fruit in your life that resembles that. Brokenness, hurt, pain, loneliness, a joyless life. But, but if the true gospel says that Jesus has already done everything on your behalf that is needed to be done, and when you put your faith in him, Jesus says to you, now, here's what you can do. You can now serve in freedom. You can love in freedom. You can live this life in this broken world. It's a messed up world, but in that world, I'll be with you. And I love you right now in this moment. I love you right now with the fullness of the Godhead Trinity. There's nothing you ever need to do to make me love you more. There's nothing you'll ever do to make me love you less. Folks, there's some people in this room that need to get your arms around that right now. You have not gone too far. God has not pulled his love back from you. God doesn't love the pastor more than he loves the flock. He doesn't love the Sunday school teacher more than he loves the deacon. He doesn't love the children more than he loves the senior adults. God loves all, and he testified to that on a hill called Calvary when his son died for all the world to see. Right there it is. He loves you. And you don't have to do anything to earn that love. It's already there. It's already there. It's a free gift. What an awesome God we serve. Which God are you serving? The one that puts you in slavery or the one that sets you free? You know the difference. question is, are you willing to change the path you're on today? To admit, to admit, that I, I, chose the, I chose the wrong God. God with a little G, I, I chose the wrong thing to put my faith in. Are you willing to, well, choose a different path? Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park.